Well, listeners, this is One Mission, the podcast. We have as our second guest in the series that's coming, a good friend and a dear brother, Dr. Robert Smith, Jr., well known for being the Prince of Preachers among us. I call him a living legend. I even described him this night at the state convention as being an example of a human word, capital W, human word streaming. And that's exactly what he is. He takes the word of God and brings a message that is so profound yet simple. The application to our lives is real. So thank you for being who you are and allowing God to use you the way you have, Robert. God be praised, Dr. Lance. So good to be with you. What we'd like to just delve into, uh, take us back to when you felt your call to ministry. Just just take a moment and let our listeners know what the pilgrimage has been like. Well, I accepted my call to the preaching ministry when I was 17, but God was up to something. Um, Immediately upon my conversion at seven years old, of age rather, I was um, saved at the Rose Chapel Baptist Church in Ah. Cincinnati, Ohio. I had uh, my Eli, I was the Samuel, but my Eli was my pastor, Pastor Elijah Lee Alexander Mm -hmm. from Pine Bluff, Arkansas. He was rigorous, he demanded excellence, we needed to know, I needed to know the Baptist um, Church Covenant. I needed to know the Articles of Faith, all 24 of them. I'm talking about uh, by age nine. Uh, he demanded that of me. My parents gave me to him. Um, we didn't use the term, didn't have the term then, but that's what he was doing. He was my mentor. Mm. And so he disciplined me and disciplined my thinking and um, um People began to see that God was hand was upon me. Apparently, they would say, "He's going to preach. He's got the bar." So, in the African American tradition, to have the mark right. didn't mean you had something on your head. Isn't not not like on some kind heart. of a, on your heart. And uh, my mother was my protector, and she said, "Don't tell little Robert because my my father was Robert Senior that he's going to preach. The Lord will tell him that because she didn't want me to answer the call based upon other people's impressions." Right. And so. Um, she warded them off. But um, by 17, I, had, I mean, I had reached a point wherever God would take me, whether it was to be a missionary or a Christian education minister, whatever it was, I was willing to do it. And I, I got saved uh, when I was seven. I accepted my call when I was 17 at the New Mission Baptist Church. And I would later, 10 years after I accepted my call at that place, I became the pastor of that congregation and stayed wow. there for wow. 28 years. That's wonderful. And being a professor of preaching, by the way, I'm, I know a lot of people are, and you hear this, but I'm a connoisseur of preaching. I'm not the best at it, but I love the best when I hear it, and you're in that category, oh. and I want you to know that. Mm-hmm. I believe it was Phillips Brooks who said, preaching is communicating divine truth yep. to a human personality. That's what he said. Which is a, a good, simple definition. Absolutely. If you were... To offer a definition, just off the top of your head, nothing has to be profound or just practical. What what would be your definition of preaching? Would it be close to that? Yeah, uh, I would say preaching is ushering the hearer Ah. by the word of God into the presence of Christ, the Son of God. Yes. Through the power of the Spirit of God for the purpose of transformation. Mm. So I take and usher people by the word of God. That's the only way I can usher them. The word has to um, lead us, escort us by the word of God 
into the presence of Christ, the Son of God, because the Word points to Christ. The Bible is not so much about the plan of salvation. It's about the man of salvation who comes to fulfill the plan of salvation. Mm -hmm. And then once he he or she is ushered into the presence of God, uh, by the power of the Spirit of God, it's Word and Spirit pointing us to Christ for the end result of transformation. Because I can't transform anyone. Right. And, uh, but it's, it's the word that transforms people so that when people come down the aisle, I can't take credit for it after I preach. And when they don't come down the aisle, I don't beat up myself right. because all I'm doing is sowing or I am watering. He is giving the increase. Amen. And I want you to know, I think you've used that before. It flowed so well. And it's actually the best definition I've ever heard. It's very descriptive of all the elements of what preaching is about. One thing today, uh, I think I want you to encourage those who are preaching, some of our listeners, many of them perhaps are preachers. Would you give them an encouraging word in these discouraging times about being steadfast and faithful in the calling God has on their lives to preach the word? Yeah. Um... <clears throat> This is not necessarily a definition or, if you will, an illustration exact in exactitude for preaching, but it's the father, the waiting father, mm. who has poured into the son, who is the prodigal son. He puts the word of the way in him, the word of the way in him. Yeah. He goes... He, even though he gets out of the way of the word uh-huh. and goes into a far country, he can't get the word of the way out of him. Oh, he yeah. gets out of the way of the word and goes into a far country and wastes his goods and riotous living and all of that, lives in the hog pen for a while, would eat the food that is being fed to the hogs. He's a Jew and he has the worst job in the world, taking care of hogs, right. pigs. But then he comes to himself. In the hog pen, there is no choir that is inspiring him to come to himself. There's no sermon. No one's passing out tracks. Nothing. No one is witnessing to him. The only noise he hears is oink, oink, oink. That's all. But the Bible says he comes to himself because though he got out of the way of the word, he couldn't get the word of the way out of him. And he says to himself, I'm going back to my father's house and I'm going to say to my father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against uh, you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of the hired servants. Mm. Where did he get that from? Because the word of the way was put in him, even though he got out of the way of the word, it was the word of the way that was in him that got him back in the way of the word and he goes back home. So when, a, when we preach and there are downtimes, downtimes, there are recessions. Uh, sometimes the church is, uh, is not going forward or backwards. It's just standing still. There are rejections, all of that. Your job and my job is to preach and believe that God's word will not return void, but it will accomplish that for which it was sent. When will it accomplish that? We're not told. How? We're not told. But it will. It'll come back like this prodigal son came back. So I want to encourage my fellow colleagues 
uh, of the gospel to keep on putting the word of the way in your people and trust that that word, like a time-release capsule, like a person taking a medicinal capsule, mm. may not work just like that, may have a delayed reaction, but it will have results. It will go off and people will make their way back to obedience. You'll see it. You'll see them coming alive and being re-energized. Revival has taken place without it being scheduled. Have confidence in the word that you preach. Don't put God on a time schedule. Let God work. And when he works, it'll be an amazing thing. It will increase your confidence in the gospel that can never, ever fail. Amen to that. While you were speaking there, I had a deep reflection over the decades. And, you know, those years turned into decades. Oh, yes. Well, many decades ago, when I first started, I was in seminary and I saved up enough money to buy the series 20 Centuries of Great Preaching. Yes, sir. I know. Great, great preachers. And I remember the early church fathers all the way up to, say, a little bit beyond the mid 1900s and the mid 20th century. But I was reflecting as you were in my mind, and I was, this is the next question. This is a flowing time of conversation. I, I'm sure you're familiar with that that set of that series. I am. Vincent and um, yes. Well, um, if you want to give us four or five highlights of great preachers from the very beginning, from the early fathers all the way, you, you go endlessly if you wanted to. Yeah. I'll tell you that volume did a lot for me to understand the history of preaching. Yeah. And so I, I, you're the you're the man that has the uh, knowledge about that. You teach it. You do well at it. Could you just Give us a description of some of those great earlier preachers. Well, it's a great volume. Um, I think of Augustine, or Amen. some call him Augustine, yes. like tomato or tomato. Yes. Um, three, three fifty-four right. to four thirty A.D. That's right. Great mind, rhetorician. Uh, he wrote the first homiletics text on the doctrine of Christianity, on Christian doctrine, yeah. teaching Christian doctrine. He was, he was powerful in that he had a powerful conversion experience. That was important. Amen to that. You know, said to God, knowing that he was living in, in, in impurity, immorality, Lord, make me pure, but not now. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but, but he got that God saved him from that. And um, um, the greatest mind, I think, I think the greatest mind in church history uh, since Paul. I really do. Wow. I, guess I would agree right. with that. So I, um, he would be one, definitely would be one. <laughs> he said something that, because he wanted to bring the head and the heart together. He says, I know when I really preached. He says, not when people applaud, but when there are tears. And what he meant mm. by that, he wasn't talking about emotionalism, but when, when what people know, they feel to the point that that uh, it is expressed in their tears, they're touched emotionally as well as um, rationally and mentally. So he's one. Uh, I would say uh, that um, John Calvin has to be yeah. uh, considered among uh, the greatest 1509 to 1564. So he didn't live a long time. Uh, Institutes of the Christian religion and went through eight 
revisions, um, something like 1,200 pages. Uh, first copy, 1536. So you're talking about a book that's uh, been in extent will almost be 500 years. Hey, that's pretty good. It is. <laughs> but, yes, sir. But a great, uh, a great theologian, once again, uh, called, wanted to be a, the- um, a lawyer. Yes, God called right. him to be a preacher. And he, um, he had a profound understanding of preaching. A church is for, for him. Wherever there is preaching of the gospel, and the right administration of the sacraments, he said. Plus, he would add and discipline. Mm-hmm. Therein is the church. That's what. So he was a disciplinarian. He was a great teacher, um, and he went against the tide. In this case, the Roman Catholic Church, um, because all that's all there was. That's right. In order to um, bring the church back to what he and others called ad fontes, back to uh, the the um, uh, the, the the basic things of Christianity um, back to the original things that were taught as primary truths from the book of Acts. So he would be one. Now let me move to um, the 20th century. Uh, Gardner Taylor yes, sir. would be one. Gardner yeah. Calvin Taylor pastored the Concord Baptist Church of Christ from 1942 to no, 1948 to 1990, that's what it was. Yeah. And um, um, significant in terms, he would be considered the poet laureate, a word molder, mm. uh, involved uh, in holistic ministry, uh, being the president of the New York City Board of Education, uh, a prince of of preachers all over all five continents, World World Baptist Alliance, so many times. You go on and on and on. But he would definitely be one. I would definitely say, um, let's say him. I'll name two others. It's very difficult. Uh, I would uh, think um, that we would consider... I think that... Um, Charles Swindoll for his illustrations yes um, for his ability to communicate yes I mean his content was solid but he could communicate so well with any audience and any age I would have to lift him as one of the one of the real effective preachers and then finally a fellow by the name of Haddon Robinson Mm. Haddon Robinson um, president of Denver Baptist Conservative University uh, uh, Seminary and of course he went on to Gordon Conwell he taught out there and all that and has written a textbook that I uh, that has been in use since 1981 so when it was first uh, written so 41 years but a tremendous exegete he could handle the scripture yes. with application always he said that what interested in he, what interested him in uh, preaching was how preaching could be effective. What made it effective? He says, "I wanted to know what it took for a sermon that lasted an hour to seem like it lasted twenty minutes, mm. yeah. and then to take a sermon that lasted twenty minutes to seem like it lasted an hour." Yeah. 
And he perfected that so he could take and squeeze content by guarding his words and developing his thought so that the sermon could really last 45 minutes. And when he got done, you wonder, 45 minutes, I just thought he got up. Yeah. Because he could hold an audience, not by entertaining, not by any kind of um, um, carnival tactics, but by the way he handled the word. Amen. Those five. Being a little bit of a student of history, I guess I'd have to throw in a couple of additional ones. Jonathan Edwards and oh, Charles Finney. my goodness. And George Whitfield. Yeah, those those men in their day, yes sir, were giants and no still question. are. Yes sir, we 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 still read about. No question. I remember in high school, I read Jonathan Edwards' sermon, "Sinners in the Hands of oh. an Angry God," and of course they wouldn't allow you to read that now. That's what I'm going to ask you. They let you read that? Yes, sir. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I was back in the, the peaceful times, I guess <laughs> you want to call that. And I, I I was already my heart was already being tuned up by looking back and seeing that, and I read the. That is a as an example of profound preaching. It was with an effective motivation of Absolutely. people. Absolutely. Also, I think about the George Whitfield effect on America. Mm-hmm. He, he had effect on people's thinking he did. about the creation of who we are as a constitution, Declaration of Independence. He That's correct. That. That's correct. He he just was the. A stellar Absolutely. example of what it meant to be effective and that booming voice. It's oh, hard there. to imagine out an open field. That's what he did. And you remember Benjamin Franklin? Uh, what he, he said. <laughs> yes, sir. And that is amazing. Here I am doing all the talking. You're no, the talking. no, no, no. But those individuals, I, I can't get enough of that. And then they, I even want to add even John Wesley, uh, thinking about, no doubt about riding it. on a horseback like he did, yep. covering England. Yep. And having some tragedies in his life. Yes, he did. Even among his children. Yes, he did. So indeed, I'd, I'd add those. And then we might not, if we're homileticians, say that Billy Graham, in the traditional sense, was a great preacher, but he was an effective evangelistic communicator. That's exactly right, Dr. Lewis. There was just, there was a Billy Graham effect. That's exactly right. I went to his crusades, my wife and I and my oldest daughter, with the last one. And I was sitting there, I've told people, I was sitting there and there were about 300 languages being spoken. And I was just listening to the gospel being just echoed out in different languages. And where I was sitting, we had to separate because the crowd so big. Where I was sitting, I was the only Caucasian there. And I felt blessed by the fact that people were hearing a man, a simple man, coming out of humble background. Yes, sir being used of God to be so effective. Now, as homileticians, we could take his sermons and kind of pick them apart. But again, the effect, he was just an effective communicator. So I appreciate all of that. And and let me say, I want to segue just to something else. Are you hopeful about the future of preaching in our churches? You're teaching students now. You feel good, hopeful about the future? Yes, but I'm spoiled. Yes, sir. Because the students that I have the privilege of teaching, they come into the classroom with a hermeneutic of assent. That is agreement with Scripture. They already agree. 
Right. This is God's word. It's not just a book like Gulliver's Travels or something like that. No, this is God's word. Um, In too many seminaries and colleges, you have to fight and argue to try to prove that which is um, true already. And they struggle with that. They don't believe in the inspiration of Scripture. Yeah. They think that there are texts of terror, Mary Daly, in Scripture. Mm-hmm. They are Marcionites of the 21st century. Marcion, who jettisoned or threw overboard the Old Testament because it presented a God of terror and wrath and only preached, didn't preach all the New Testament, but most of the New Testament. See, so they come in oh, that way. My students, they yeah. don't. They know. But I have a confidence that preaching as um, is re- experiencing a rebound. I really, really, really do believe that it's doing that because we don't have any other choice. Hmm. We've run out of innovative ideas and catchy gadgets. And we tried this and that and this thing at the turn of the 20th century the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. In every way, we're getting better and better. Really? And we can so you're not getting better and better. We're getting worse and worse. And all these other things are not working. Therefore, the only thing that really works permanently and helps people, even though the conditions don't change, people see individuals who are grounded in the word of God and they are like trees that wrap their roots around each other, planted by the rivers of water. And the wind blows them, but all they do is lock their roots together. They bow, but they don't break. And everyone else, all these other things, they're breaking. And No, it's, it has become, I, I, believe, I believe that because it's become a necessity now. And there is no other option for many other people. They see that. I have to agree with you. I can echo that. I'm on the seminary campuses some and my role. And I'm impressed with what the future holds yeah. there. Now, they're a select, they're like Navy SEALs. They're a select group. <laughs> yeah, I, I love the Navy SEALs. That's so good. I, I call them the elite. That's good. The ones who really are hungry for the Word of God, hungry to serve the Lord in such a way that their lives are secondary to the primary purpose Absolutely. of the Lord. Yes, and sir. in many ways, they uh, are probably better at it than my generation. Yes, yes. Even though there were a lot of us who are baby boomers yes, coming yes. along. I, I must ask, though, I know you don't want to talk about yourself. I'd rather talk about you a lot because I do often. But I want you to tell us a little bit about one of your books, Doctrine That Dances. Doctrines That Dances. Yeah. Um, Doctrine That Dances is a um, an attempt at excelling in preaching and teaching the Word of God to lift up this thought. Doctrine does not need to be boring. What's boring is not doctrine, but the presenter. And I'm not talking about flashy this and this. I'm talking about looking at the raw naked text and letting it dance and not drag. Mm-hmm. Dance, but not drag. 
the poetry that's there. Right. You know, uh, God rides on the winds of clouds and, you know, um, various. So that's what I, I think that, um, that doctrine is the life of the church, but it can't be dead doctrine. Doctrine always points beyond itself. It never points, it's a sign. It never points back to itself. It points to someone beyond itself. So if you're talking about the doctrine of redemption, which is what Job was talking about in Job 19, 25 through 27, I know that my Redeemer, not redemption, I know that my Redeemer lives. Mm. And at the latter day, he, my Redeemer, shall stand upon the earth. And after the skin worms had devoured my body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall not behold another. He's not talking about redemption. He's talking about redeemer. Because when I go into a, a, a restaurant, I don't care how beautiful the menu is. It could be gold-plated and all kinds of curly uh, writing, fashionable writing, fancy, all that stuff. And uh, here are the selections. I can't eat the menu. Yeah. I look at the menu. I look, but what I want is what the menu points to. Chicken, steak, salmon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Doctrine is the menu. Mm. But it points to the one who is the bread of life. Mm. It points to the one that the psalmist says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So that's what I'm, that's really what I'm trying to do. How do you present doctrine as a communicator of scripture? Christian, or the preacher, teacher, whatever. How do you present it in such a way that it um, exalts Christ and you see him in a glorious way and that excites you because now you can intelligently worship the one that you know, you've experienced mm -hmm. with. It's not just something, you got to have an intellectual foundation. It can't just be emotional. Your emotion must be based upon the correct doctrine. And if that's the case, then you can worship him not only in spirit, but worship him in truth. That's what I'm after. Well, that is a good uh, analysis of your book. And it's a very, what I marvel at you, in you, is your ability to illustrate with common things like a menu. I mean, I, I would look at a menu and never be able to translate that into an illustration. So I have to say in the most positive way, I envy you in so many ways. God has gifted you with that ability to see truth where some of us just see objects and mundane things. I want to thank you for your time tonight. I want you to know that your presence in our state convention that we just held, <laughs> you, uh, you, really, you really helped us so much to understand how we can celebrate. That's been our theme, Psalm 100. And you, you brought the lights on. You just turned the lights on for us. And I, I, wanna, I never butter anyone up, but you're one of the most interesting people that I'm ever able to be around. And I'll, I'll tell you this. I said this to Willie McLaurin, our dear brother. Oh, yeah. Some people I'm around, I, I'm a little tense. But there, there are people like you and him. It calms me down. You just have that calming effect. So thank you uh -huh. for sharing what God has 
endowed you with and your gifts to the glory and honor of him. We thank you for being a part of this One Mission podcast. I appreciate it. God bless you, friend. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother.